0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 241, Hungary for Security. Last time in the narrative, it was 1161, and Manuel Komnenos had brought peace to Byzantium. During the course of his 17 years on the throne, the emperor had made peace deals with the Normans, the Serbs, the Hungarians, the Venetians, the Turks of Iconium, the Armenians in Cilicia, and the leading men of Outremir. You couldn't fault his efforts, he really had attended to foreign affairs and attempted to find equilibrium with the empire's neighbours. The question now was what would he do next? It's from this point on that I begin to question Manuel's decision-making. I assumed that, like his father and grandfather, he would return to Anatolia to campaign against the Turks. But the emperor largely ignored them, focusing instead on the Balkans, Italy and Outremere. Since Manuel knew infinitely more about the situation than I do, I owe it to him to attempt to justify his choices. That will be slightly easier this week than next, but I'll give it my best shot. Today, Manuel will spend the best part of a decade focused on the Kingdom of Hungary and the wider security situation in the Balkans. The Emperor was apparently not happy with the state of affairs that had prevailed for the last century – and wanted a more permanent peace settled in Byzantium's favour. As you've probably noticed over the course of the last century, both the Serbians and Hungarians would periodically poke the empire with a stick. This would usually take the form of raiding imperial territory, or capturing border forts, which the Romans only lightly defended. Inevitably, the emperor would have to march across the Balkans to remind them why this was a bad idea. A peace would be signed, and then the cycle would start again, 5, 10 or 15 years later. It was tiresome, but seemed like the price of doing business in the region. Both Alexius and John chose to accept the status quo and used the periods of peace they were granted to focus on Anatolia. Manuel decided to do things differently committing significant resources during the 1160s to gain a peace that would not be broken. I think Manuel's perspective was different from that of his ancestors because of his experience of the Second Crusade. The willingness of the French and German monarchs to march east created real anxiety in Manuel. He correctly identified their presence outside the gates of Constantinople as the most likely source of the empire's downfall, which meant that his priority, above all others, was to prevent another overland campaign to Jerusalem. The major threat seemed to come from the German emperor. He lived closest to Byzantium, carried that dangerous imperial title, and at this time was Frederick Barbarossa a fearsome individual who'd rejected Byzantine peace overtures in favour of enforcing the claims of his office. Our historian John Kinnemus says explicitly that it was rumours of a German invasion that prompted Manuel to give priority to Hungarian affairs. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that Barbarossa planned on attacking Constantinople But this was a period when the Byzantines remained in protracted discussions with the papacy, the Venetians and the Normans about the potential for an anti-Barbarossa alliance. All those powers feared Frederick's attempts to assert German rights over Italy, which we'll talk more about next week. Hungary, the filling in a German Byzantine sandwich, was obviously key to any theoretical war. The Germans would have to march through Hungary to get to the Danube, and therefore it was vital, from Constantinople's point of view, that the Hungarians and Germans should be on frosty terms. As you can imagine, relations between those two central European powers was often cold, and clashes in the borderlands took place every generation. But in between, periods of détente followed, and with it, talks of closer relations. It was this talk that worried Manuel. Hungary also bordered two other powers who were relevant to the Romans, the Rus and the Serbians. The Rus you know all about. They were no longer united under one ruler, which made them less of a threat to Constantinople, but they could still lend military support to the Hungarians if it suited their interests. The Serbs were a more immediate problem. We haven't really talked about Serbia in detail, Their political history is complicated, and militarily they were no match for the empire. My apologies to those interested in Serbian history, but I feel I've had to simplify things to keep the narrative comprehensible. The Serbs were divided into multiple states, whose names and locations change across the centuries. Recently, though, whenever I refer to the emperor marching to Serbia, I'm referring to the lands which bordered the empire's outpost at Niš. This was the territory of the Grand Zupan of Serbia, whose capital was usually in the region of Raska. I've updated my map of the Balkans for this episode, so check it out at the website or on social media. The Serbs were still largely a pastoral people. They pushed their flocks around the mountains and forests of the western Balkans, and their strongholds were so remote that there was little chance of the Romans attempting to take them. The problems came each year when the Serbs pushed their flocks down into the lowlands. This brought them into conflict with settled communities loyal to the empire and encouraged brigandage on the major roads back to Constantinople. The Serbs had developed close ties with the Hungarians over the years and action by one against the empire was often mirrored by the other, something Manuel was keen to shut down. Ultimately, Manuel probably wanted to return to the alliance which his father had enjoyed with successive German emperors, an alliance that would safeguard Constantinople from attack and ideally lead to cooperation against the Normans. But while Barbarossa seemed belligerent, Manuel aimed to make sure the powers in his backyard were firmly muzzled. The opportunity to kickstart this project came in 1162, when King Gezer of Hungary died and the throne passed to his son, Stephen III. As with other societies whose origins were on the steppe, the Hungarians did not practice strict primogeniture. Instead, the king's other male relatives, particularly his brothers, had a claim to rule instead. Geza had two brothers, both of whom had fled the country and taken up refuge in the Byzantine capital. Manuel decided to press their claims in order to install an ally on the throne of Hungary. The brothers arrived at the border with a Byzantine army behind them, and the Hungarians accepted the emperor's suggestion. However, they rejected Geza's older brother, Stephen IV, because Manuel had married him to his niece, which made him look too much like a Roman puppet. They were willing to accept his younger brother, Ladislas. This worked for a year, but then Ladislas died, leading to a civil war between the two Stephens. Stephen III, Geza's son, remained the choice of the Hungarian elite. Manuel marched to the Danube, theoretically in support of Geza's brother, Stephen IV, but he was beginning to have doubts about imposing such an unpopular candidate on the Hungarians. Eventually, Manuel negotiated with Stephen III, as in Geza's son, and a deal was struck where the Byzantines would recognise him as king, but they would take away his brother, Bela, as a hostage. That would have been a good deal in itself, a reasonable guarantee of peace between the two sides, but Manuel clearly had bigger things in mind. It was the custom in Hungary to give younger princes their own appanage, a small territory within the Hungarian realm to govern as their own, a form of compensation for the fact that they were unlikely to inherit the throne itself. Bela's territory included parts of Croatia and the Dalmatian coast lands which the Hungarians had captured a few decades earlier. Manuel saw an opportunity to bring these territories within the Byzantine orbit. There seems to be some debate about whether Bella's inheritance also included the lands of frango This was the land between the Danube and Sava rivers, roughly between the old Roman fortress of Sirmium and the city of Belgrade. Again, check the map. Manuel was very keen to gain control of this area as well. It was a natural crossing point for Hungarian and Crusader armies heading south, and the local population were largely orthodox, which made it less likely to resist Roman influence. Perhaps these lands were not a part of Bela's appanage, but Manuel insisted on taking them as part of the peace deal. To secure them, he offered the Hungarians his most precious diplomatic asset his daughter, Maria. Bella would come to Constantinople and marry Manuel's only child. This was a very big deal, carrying with it the promise of peace and cooperation between the two great powers for decades to come. You may remember that Manuel's own mother was a Hungarian princess, so the emperor clearly felt a personal connection to Hungary and wanted peace secured for the next generation. For Bella, barely a teenager, it must have been a disorienting time. Though he was being taken away as a prisoner, he was also being promised a great future. His inheritance would be jealously guarded by the Roman authorities, but of course they would also administer them on his behalf. Bella was given a high court title, and men bowed down before him, and yet he had no real power. It's situations like this that demanded the creation of the phrase, a gilded cage. The Romans were not going to bow down before any old foreigner either, so Bella was educated in the Orthodox tradition and renamed Alexius. The Byzantine occupation of their new territories was light. The Dalmatian cities had a long history of independence, dating back to the collapse of Roman authority in Heraclius's day. Constantinople sent administrators, but few troops. More boots hit the ground in Frangatorian, but not so many that the Hungarians would feel threatened. Unfortunately for the peace, Manawil did not completely abandon Stephen IV, as in Geza's brother, whose marriage to the emperor's niece made him hard to get rid of. In 1164, Stephen took a band of supporters and installed himself at Sirmium, From there, he tried to drum up support for his right to be king. The actual king of Hungary, Stephen III, was understandably angry and felt that this violated the treaty he'd signed with Manuel. Both he and his uncle Stephen appealed to the German court for support, which alarmed Manuel. In spring 1165, the Hungarians invaded Frangochorian and besieged Stephen IV in the fortress of Semlin near Belgrade. Manuel marched to his aid, but was distracted when news came that as soon as he'd left Constantinople, his cousin Andronicus had escaped and gone on the run. This was the occasion when Andronicus made a wax impression of his door key to get out of prison, hopped on a boat north, before being recognised and captured. He then managed to escape again. He created a dummy to make his captors think he was... Uh, well, relieving himself by the side of the road, but instead he disappeared into the trees and continued his journey north. Eventually he made it to one of the Rus courts and asked for help, and apparently they were considering giving him some troops so that he could return to Byzantium. The possibility that Andronicus might work with the Hungarians against Manawil must have been a looming spectre. The emperor dispatched ambassadors who quickly found Andronicus and convinced his host that it would be much better if he handed him over. Meanwhile, back at Semlin, the Hungarians managed to convince a servant to poison Stephen IV, who died soon afterwards. The Hungarians took control of the fort, but were quickly besieged by Manuel, who now arrived with his army. Komnenos dusted off his father's siege engines and began to use them to smash through Semlin's defences. During these operations, Andronicus was brought before the emperor. He must have made one hell of an apology, because Manuel forgave him, allowed him to take part in the attack, and then the next year appointed him governor of Cilicia. Needless to say, Manuel had a soft spot for Andronicus. The siege was soon over and Frangochorian was back in imperial hands. The Hungarians had also sent men to Dalmatia to try and throw the Romans out of there, but the operation had been foiled with Venetian assistance. Manuel received news of this just as envoys from King Stephen appeared. Stephen was in a conciliatory mood now that his uncle was dead, and his representatives offered to hand back Frangochorian and Dalmatia to the empire. Emmanuel, probably less sarcastically than I'd like, replied, Oh, do you have other lands of mine, called Frangochorian and Dalmatia, because I already control territories by those names. Emmanuel marched back to Constantinople, satisfied that things were as he wanted them. He ordered the generals he left behind, though, to improve the defences of the local cities. It was a wise precaution since war would resume the following year. Before we get to that, though, Manuel had a big announcement to make. Andronicus's escape had alerted him to the fact that until he had a legitimate heir, men within the new aristocracy might try to replace him. Manoel was by now married to Maria of Antioch, but they had yet to produce a son. She had been quite ill during the campaigning season and would later miscarry a child. It all left Manuel feeling a little insecure so he decided to nominate an heir. To the surprise of many, he chose young Bella, now Alexius. In front of the assembled nobility that autumn, Manuel presented his daughter and Bella, confirming their engagement and formally nominating Bella as his heir. The Komnenian clan were forced to swear oaths of loyalty to the new couple and bow before the Hungarian prince. Many grumbled at this imposition of a foreign boy as their superior. Andronicus was particularly vocal, and many agreed with him. Perhaps that's why he was shipped off to Cilicia soon afterwards. If you need a reminder of what Andronicus got up to next, then re-listen to episode 238. The elevation of Bella looked like a radical move on paper. If Manuel died, the teenage Bella would become Emperor of the Romans. And if, by some strange coincidence, Stephen III died too, Bella would technically be Roman Emperor and Hungarian King at the same time. This would never have happened, of course. Neither the Romans nor the Hungarians had any incentive to unite their realms. Both courts would have found a way to prevent this. And it would have seemed a distant possibility at the time – Bella and Maria were still too young to wed, and King Stephen was only in his twenties. Manuel was just buying time until he could produce an heir of his own. Still, it was an unusual move, which somewhat fit with Manuel's more maverick tendencies. Once again, King Stephen invaded Frangatorian in spring 1166, this time seizing Sirmium. Stephen was under pressure from his nobles to test Byzantine resolve. Manuel responded swiftly and brutally. He sent troops to Sirmium to keep the Hungarians occupied. Then the Byzantine fleet sailed halfway along the Danube and helped another army cross into the unguarded Hungarian interior. After raiding around Transylvania for a few weeks, they led hundreds of prisoners back to the Roman side, giving Manuel an excellent bargaining chip. King Stephen was thoroughly humbled and signed another treaty. The peace was negotiated by an Austrian duke who was able to represent Frederick Barbarossa's views while also mollifying Manuel. This foreign-sponsored peace angered many amongst the Hungarian nobility who felt they had not been beaten by the Byzantines. The following spring, 1167, a coalition of 37 generals rebelled against their king and led 15,000 soldiers to Sirmium. If these men would only accept peace after being beaten by the Romans, then their wish was about to be granted. Manuel called upon the full strength of his army, demanding contingents be sent from both the Serbs and the Turks of Iconium. The emperor would not ride with them, though. According to Kinemus, Manuel had fallen under his horse while playing polo that winter, injuring himself badly and suffering a concussion. So the emperor handed over command to his nephew, Andronicus Kanto who met the Hungarians in battle just outside Semlin in early July. Our eyewitness, John Kinemus, was by now on hand to see things unfold, so we get a thorough description of the Roman army for the first time in a while. He says that the vanguard was made up of horse archers, both Turks and Cumans, and then Conto Stefanos was in the centre, surrounded by the Varangians and other imperial guards, along with the Serb infantry and some Italian cavalry. On the left wing, regular Roman and Bulgarian troops were stationed, while on the right, the elite Roman cavalry waited with German and Turkic mercenaries. The Roman army was organised and specialised. Infantry and cavalry were all divided up to perform different functions. Infantry at the very front to absorb an enemy charge, with cavalry stationed behind. But then there were more infantry behind them to help prevent flanking, and in some cases more cavalry behind them as a reserve force. The Hungarians, by contrast, lined up in one solid mass, heavily armoured lancers in the front line with infantry in support. The Hungarians were a fearsome opponent, but the more flexible tactics of the Romans won the day. Conto Stephanos sent his horse archers in to pepper the Hungarian line and induce them to charge forward. This they did. The Hungarians managed to break through the Roman left wing, sending the regular Byzantine troops fleeing back to the river Sava. But only some units fled, the others absorbed the charge and fought hand-to-hand with the enemy. In the centre, Andronicus's infantry also absorbed a cavalry charge. The Roman left wing now manoeuvred and were able to charge themselves into the flanks of the Hungarian formation. With everyone engaged, Andronicus led his own cavalry into the melee. The heavily armoured Romans used their maces to smash at the Hungarians, killing many in the carnage. Those on the Roman left who'd fled now reappeared, suggesting either their flight was prearranged or morale was so good that they'd been able to form up quickly. With new bodies joining the line, the Hungarians broke and fled. They had no reserve force, as the Romans had. And without men to protect their retreat, withdrawal meant a rout. With so many horse archers in the Byzantine ranks, this was always going to end in disaster, and the Romans were merciless in their pursuit, leaving the battlefield littered with the enemy dead. It was a comprehensive victory, and Manuel marched up to the Danube to enforce a comprehensive peace. Hostages were handed over, tribute was paid, and as Manuel always demanded in these deals, troops would be sent to fight for him on request. The terms of the peace also stipulated that the royal crown of Hungary should be subject to the emperor's sovereignty, essentially making Hungary a client state like Serbia the choice of its ruler in Manuel's power. It was an extraordinary victory for Komnenos, who celebrated a triumph through the streets of Constantinople. Manuel did now shift his focus to other theatres, but let's stay in the Balkans for five more years to take this particular story to its conclusion. In 1169, the Empress Maria at last gave birth to a son, who Manuel named Alexius. This decision seems to confirm Manuel's investment in the Aema prophecy, since tradition would have seen the boy named John. As you may have noticed, Bella was also renamed Alexius when he was in a position to inherit the throne. For those who want to take superstition out of the equation, historian Paul Stevenson points out that the Aimer prophecy was bound to be embraced by Manuel since it helped justify his own elevation over his brother Isaac, a decision that had remained controversial for many years afterwards. Two years later, the toddler Alexius was deemed healthy enough to be elevated to the rank of co-emperor meaning that Bela Alexius was officially demoted. Bela became merely the Caesar and had his fiancée taken away from him. Bela and Maria had not yet been married, possibly confirming that Manuel had never intended to leave the empire to the Hungarian prince. Bela would instead marry the empress's stepsister. Then, unexpectedly, in 1172, King Stephen III of Hungary died without issue. Not wishing to go to war again, the Hungarian authorities asked Manuel to send Bela to become their new king, essentially accepting their status, for the time being, as a client state. Bela took an oath not to harm Byzantine interests and was duly installed as king. Bella kept his word and would remain loyal to Manuel, even beyond the latter's death. That same year, Manuel marched in person to Serbia. Once more I've given Serbian history short shrift. On three separate occasions during the Hungarian wars, the Serbs had broken their treaty obligations and the Romans had to send troops there to bring them into line. In that year, 1172, their new leader, Stefan Nemanja, was once again raiding lands that he wasn't supposed to. Credit to him, though, once he saw the emperor had arrived at Nish, he came in person to beg for forgiveness, a decision which spared his people from further Roman reprisals. Manuel was pleased with the Zupan's abject submission and took him back to Constantinople. He was paraded through the streets in humiliation before swearing to remain loyal to the emperor. Nemanja had a bright future ahead of him, but for now he went back to Serbia and would remain quiet for the remainder of Manuel's reign. At the time, contemporaries saw all of this as a great victory for Manuel. He had reduced the Balkans to obedience, he had brought new, old territories under the Byzantine yoke, and the chances of an invasion through the Balkans succeeding during his lifetime were now surely nil. Manuel's actions were undoubtedly successful. My reservations are based on the realities of rule across his father and grandfather's reigns. The domination he'd achieved over Hungary and Serbia was temporary. Those states would return to belligerence at some point in the future. That was just their way of life. And since things were already peaceful back in 1161, Did Manuel really need to spend a decade beating them up? Could he not have turned his attention to the Turks while all was quiet, and only return when they caused trouble, as had been the rhythm of politics for a century? Byzantine control of the cities of Dalmatia was equally ephemeral. As discussed earlier, there was almost no imperial presence on the ground, The subordination of these places was similar to that of Cilicia and Antioch, a distant outpost that would throw off imperial control as soon as the winds changed. The Romans couldn't hope to keep these places or use them in any meaningful way. So what was the point of all this effort? Dabbling in Dalmatia also upset the Venetians, as we'll see next week. That was another reason to focus on attacking the Turks – They were the only neighbours of the empire you could attack without upsetting all the other pieces on the chessboard. It's also worth questioning whether the Germans really were a threat during this period. As we'll see in our next episode, Frederick Barbarossa was keen to kick the Byzantines out of Italy, but he showed no signs of wanting to lead a crusade through the streets of Constantinople. When he was involved diplomatically in Manoel's wars, he seemed conciliatory. In fact, in 1165, at the height of hostilities, Frederick offered Manoel an alliance against the Hungarians. Rather than trying to undermine the Romans, Frederick was willing to contemplate joint action that would strengthen them both. I can't help but feel that Manoel had wasted a valuable decade. And I'm afraid next week, it will be more of the same. The emperor will continue to pour money into Italy for little gain, while also offering help to the king of Jerusalem in the small matter of the conquest of Egypt.